Hi, this is Eric Ludi for the Daily Thunder Podcast. If you are enjoying these messages and want to take these truths even deeper, I invite you to join us in Windsor, Colorado at Ellerslie for one of our upcoming five-week or week-long discipleship training programs. Ellerslie's discipleship training has been designed to ignite your spiritual fire and to give you the tools for a Christianity that really works. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5 is where we're going to be. For those who are uh, listening to the podcast or watching the uh, video, uh, what we just got out of over the last couple of weeks uh, or the whole summer is uh, Eric's been walking through a series called Alfred the Great, Spiritual Lessons from Alfred the Great. Has anybody, has anybody listened to that? Not good. Yeah. I, I was actually, I've never heard that story. And I mean, I'd heard of Vikings, uh, but they're a lot worse than I thought they were. And uh, <laughs> walking through that series. Uh, and so Eric, Eric has finished uh, the Spiritual Lessons of Alfred the Great. And then I was walking through the Christian mindset. And we were mainly focused on the summer in uh, Philippians 4.8 and uh, in terms of Bible study stuff, that probably was one of the most personally stirring, life-changing series that I've, I've walked through. And I, I think it's just because it was just so, I don't know, it was just so in my face and it kept kicking me in the teeth and it was just painfully good, uh, at least personally. And uh, so what we're, what we're doing, I just thought I'd at least clarify for y'all, but then specifically for those who are listening to the podcast or watching the video is uh, over these next couple of weeks, we're kind of doing these short mini-series. So Leslie had one last week. Uh, this week, because we have you guys, the week-long students here, uh, we are getting special daily thunders from all the staff. So throughout the week, you're going to hear like just different voices, which is going to be really exciting. And then next week, uh, I'm going to be doing a mini-series for the entire week, uh, looking at God's eternal purpose and plan as found in Ephesians chapter 3, the first few verses. And then Leslie's going to have a mini-series for a week. Eric's going to have a mini-series for a week. And then starting, I think it's September 6th-ish, whatever that week is, uh, Eric and I are going to jump back into a brand new series for about seven weeks. And so we're kind of doing these little mini-season concepts. uh, And I don't know yet what Eric's fully doing. He's been teasing it out some ideas. But since I don't know what it is official, I shouldn't probably tell you what he's thinking of. Uh, but my fall series is that we are going to basically walk through the prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14, going down to the end of the chapter. And it's just an incredible declaration of the rich life of Jesus uh, and Paul's desire that you would actually know Jesus in the fullest extent to be filled with the fullness of God. Oh, it's going to be good. So I'm very excited. Uh, so I encourage you to consider uh, joining us in the fall for those series. Uh, but again, this week we're walking through uh, just kind of the staff is each taking a day, and I have no idea what the rest of them are going to talk about. Uh, we, we gave no parameters. So my guess is they're not going to tie in in a normal sense, except they're all going to focus on Jesus, because that's what the word focuses on, <laughs> as we talked about last night. Uh, in, in the session. Uh, so 2 Samuel chapter 5 is where we are uh, this morning. And I, I want to give you a, a concept and a passage uh, from this passage 
Uh, <clears throat> I, I alluded it for the students last night a little bit, uh, but the entirety of the Old Testament focuses on Jesus Christ. And I, I know that he's not there by name, but Jesus is a part of the triune God, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And when you see God working and acting and moving in the Old Testament, uh, you can't just say the Father because we're talking the triune God, that God himself, right? The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is acting and speaking and moving and, and performing and just and stirring the hearts and the lives. And, and he has this incredible redemptive story that begins in chapter 3 of Genesis and goes all the way uh, to, the end of the, to the end of the book. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things I didn't say last night, and it would just be good for everyone to know afresh, uh, but what you see happening in the physical reality of the Old Testament, in other words, did the things in the Old Testament actually take place? Yes, that, that would be the correct answer, just, just in case you didn't know. Uh, was Jonah swallowed by a big fish? Uh, was Daniel actually thrown into a lion's den? Right, these things actually took place. So these are not good moral stories, though that is being pandered out today, uh, that these things actually didn't happen, they're just great stories for our edification. That is not true. This thing, is, this, this thing is real. This thing is historical. This thing is accurate. This thing actually took place. And I'll fight you on it. I know that's not intimidating, but I will fight tooth and nail. Why? Because this is, this is real, folks. And so when you look at the Old Testament, it is, hey, it actually happened. It is historical. There is context. Uh, the more we're learning in archaeology, the more it is only proving this book out which is phenomenal when you think about it. Uh, and I love the fact that Israel spends a big portion of their budget in archaeology. And part of that is for their own sake, because the more they go back in their own history, the more it proves out that it is actually their land, that it is not the land of Palestine. It's the land of Israel. And by the way, I won't get into that. I will. Uh, I figured I'm already making political statements. I might as well just keep going. Do you know where that land got the name Palestine from? It was from the Romans. And the Romans, when they, were, when they were ransacking Israel and they're trying to take over Israel, they wanted it not to be named as the place of Israel. They wanted to name it after the greatest enemies of Israel, the Philistines. And so the emperor of Rome, I forgot the year, but the emperor of Rome literally renamed the place and was known as Palestine as a way to almost push the Jews out. Isn't that fascinating? So Israel spends a big portion of their budget in archaeology. Why? To prove that this has always been their land, that, that God gave them this land. And therefore, when you go back, you know, thousands of years, hey, this, this was still our land. And some of the stuff that even scholars were, were questioning, like, was David even a real king? And there was no archaeological evidence. Uh, there was all this stuff that nobody... Nobody could figure out. They just thought it was a good story that there was this king named David. And that was presumed up until the 50s when finally they found some, uh, in, in an archaeological dig, they found this placard that talked about King David. Isn't it fascinating that the, that the more we even dig into archaeology, the more it only proves that this thing is real? That's encouraging. Good morning. <laughs> It's like, wake up, come on, this is exciting. So when we come into the Old Testament, again, this thing actually happened. These things are true stories. This is real. 
But there's also a spiritual reality to this. And here's the concept. What is happening in the physical reality of the Old Testament is a picture of the spiritual reality now in your life. Does that make any sense? So when I come into the Old Testament, it actually took place. It's real. The things here, I mean, this, hey, I'll fight you on this one, right? These, these things are real. These are accurate. It's historical. But God is using them as a foreshadow that this is a big picture pointing to the greater reality that we have in Christ Jesus. We do not wage battles against flesh and blood like we did back in the Old Testament. We don't grab swords and cut people's heads off. Aren't you thankful? Uh, we no longer have to do the sacrifices. Aren't you thankful? Because you know how bloody this, this area would have been? Uh, so, hey, this, is, so this was real back then, but it also becomes a shadow pointing to the greater reality. We are in a spiritual battle, folks, but it's, it's not this one. It's not the Old Testament cut people's heads off, but it is just as real. And when you look at the Old Testament, this becomes a picture of your spiritual battle inside you now. Does that make sense? And so what you see happening then is all these incredible stories of the Old Testament take on a whole other layer of meaning when you look at it from the spiritual lens that what is happening physically here in the Old Testament is now to be happening spiritually here in my life. And if you begin to read the Old Testament that way, it becomes very profound. And so let me give you one of those examples. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, what you have is the coronation of King David. Uh, we know that at the end of 1 Samuel, King Saul and his son Jonathan died on Mount Gilboa. And at the very beginning of chapter 2 of Samuel, David is told by the Amalekite, hey, King Saul's dead, you're now the king. Woo, congratulations. Now, there's a problem that happens for seven and a half years, and it's the fact that Ishbosheth, one of the sons of Saul, is reigning over some of the kingdoms up north. And David is ruling from this place called Hebron for seven and a half years. And he's basically over the tribe of Judah and some, um, some other areas. Uh, but for seven and a half years, David is not the full king. He's just a part, part king, if you want to think of it that way. And at the end of chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, Isbesheth dies. And now at the very beginning of chapter 5, David, the true and rightful king, is crowned and all of Israel rejoices. Now, I mentioned this last night to our students, but David is a picture of Jesus. Now, he's not Jesus. David had sin. David had problems. Okay? So we're not saying that David was Jesus. But David's life, as Paul would say, in the New Testament, in, in Romans, and the writer of Hebrews says this stuff, they are a type. It, it, it is a finger. It is a, it is a pointer pointing to the reality of Jesus here in the New Covenant. So as I come into the Old Testament, again, I, I have David who is crowned king while Saul is king. So here is David, the true and rightful king, but he's now in hostile territory. It's actually treason for Samuel to have anointed David. Why? Because there's a king on the throne. And so now you have, Dave, or so you have Saul, who's an incredible picture of the flesh, and you have David, who's a picture of the spirit, and the flesh and the spirit are warring against one another. And there was, was there, tw was there 20? I can't remember the number now, but it's like 20 
different assassination attempts Saul had on on David's life. Why? Because the flesh, the first, hates the second and is threatened by the second, the spirit. Isn't it interesting, though, that in chapter 5, David is now the true and rightful king over all of Israel? But it's interesting, the moment that takes place, the Philistines rise up. And if you, if you look at verse 17 of 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, this is what it says. When the Philistines heard that they anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. Have you noticed that true in your spiritual life? That it's like the moment you allow Jesus to be king and Lord of your life, it's like all the enemies of your soul rise up and say, No! And you're like, I, I, thought, I thought life became easy when Jesus became king of my life. I, I thought it was supposed to be like bunny rabbits and sunflowers and Skittles falling from the heavens and, you know, things are supposed to be, a, supposed to be great and relaxing. And isn't life supposed to be easy when I come to Jesus? Well, I don't know what gospel you heard, but biblically, you come to Jesus, guess what? Things get harder. That's promised to you, by the way. So if you didn't know what you signed up for when you came to Christ, well, you're in now, so you might as well get used to it. Uh, so just embrace it. But do you realize that you are promised hardship? In fact, God delights to use hardship in your life. Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 says, Hey, I boast and brag about my hardships. What? Paul, you're, you're going to brag about difficulty? Paul goes, yes, because I know what God's doing with that difficulty. It's bringing about godliness in my life. And so here are these difficulties, and, and it presses you ever more into the likeness of Jesus. That's encouraging when you're facing hardships. And Paul says, you can brag about that. Why? Because his strength is revealed in my weakness. And hey, in, in the midst of my trials and my tribulations and my difficulties, I get to lean on Jesus. And it presses me. You grow more in hardships than you do in easy times. So if you expected Christianity to be easy, you signed up for the wrong deal. Hey, if you want the enemy to leave you alone, stay in his camp. He's not going to bother you if, if, he's, if you're under his control. But the moment I become... A Christian, and the moment Jesus becomes the king of my life, the enemy is dead set against me. I find it interesting that, that you see this same parallel happening when the Israelites entered into the promised land. Well, when Joshua, who by the way, it's the same name as Jesus, when, when Joshua brings the people across the Jordan River into the promised land, which by the way is not heaven. I know our Southern Gospel songs sing that. When we cross the Jordan, whoo, we've made it. No, when you cross the Jordan, now you're starting. That we were in Egypt in this bondage of slavery. That's the picture of Egypt. All throughout Scripture, Egypt is symbolic of slavery. And you realize that you are enslaved to sin, that you're in slavery. How do you get out of Egypt? The blood of a lamb. It's called Passover. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says, do you know who our Passover lamb is? Jesus. Because how do you get out of Egypt? How do you get out of slavery? The blood of a lamb. Then we go into the wilderness, and the wilderness is a proving. It's a testing season. You have to go through a proving season. It's, it's, it's a testing of the faith. And the first group did not do so hot because they looked at the promised land, and they said, we, we don't trust that God can bring us in there. 
And so for 40 years, one day for every day that they spied out the land, they had to wander the wilderness until that entire generation died off. But do you realize it was to take less than two weeks to get across the wilderness to get into the promised land? But hey, when you get out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb, you are going to face a season of trial. Why? It's going to test your faith. You need that. But you're not meant to live in the wilderness. You're supposed to press in, cross the Jordan, and come into the promised land. And when they crossed over and they went into the promised land, you realize, you're like, oh, that should be so relaxing. Oh, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey and just everything's easy. No, no, it's not. It's the Middle East. <laughs> it is hard to live in a place in the Middle East. You got you to trust. It, it's a place of faith. And isn't it interesting, the very first thing they had to do when they cross over is deal with this city called Jericho. And once Jericho falls, and do you know how it fell? By faith. And once Jericho fell, do you realize there were 30 other hostile empires that had to be dealt with? And the book of Judges, and I think it's also in Joshua, it records that there are 31 hostile empires in the promised land. And you're like, well, I thought it was supposed to be easy. They're in the promised land. You're right. But do you realize the same thing's true about your life? That as you come into the reality of Jesus, and you say, oh, this is going to be so easy. Yeah, but now there are 31 hostile empires in your spiritual life that need to be dealt with. And it's, it's a symbolic number. Okay, I don't, you don't check them off a list because if your life has 32, then all 32 need to be dealt with. And if you can only find 29, you don't have to scrounge up the other two. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's a picture of something. It's the fact that when I come to Christ, now he's starting to deal with the inside stuff. Now he's dealing with lust and greed and pride and anger and that, and there's those operations in our life that God needs to get a hold of and change and transform. And just like Jericho was brought to the ground by faith, guess how these inner enemies of the soul are brought down? By faith. So just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're like, oh, life is now easy. Now it's, okay, I'm in a spiritual battle and all the enemies of Christ now need to be removed. Does that make sense to you? Isn't that a beautiful picture? And so you have the same thing going on with David. So here is David, the true and rightful king, and he is now crowned king over all of Israel. And the moment the Philistines hear that David is crowned king, they rise up and go against David. Why? Because they refuse to let him remain king. And my guess is as you continually press forward in the reality of your spiritual life, you're going to sense that inside of you too. That the moment I fully allow Jesus to be king, you're going to start to notice, why, why is it that suddenly I'm now dealing with this? Why, why is it that I feel like I'm in a battle all the time? Well, it's because God is removing the enemies of your soul. And again, the enemy would actually prefer you to be in his camp. He, he wants you to stay in Egypt. But if you get out of Egypt, he at least wants to keep you in the wilderness and not live in the promised land. But if you make it into the promised land, well, then he has 31 hostile empires that are going to come against you. And I'm talking symbolically. Amen. <laughs> Does that make sense? So, so you, you need to realize that you are in a battle, and when you put Jesus Christ as king of your life, something's going to happen within you. That there is a battle of flesh and spirit raging within you. So what are you going to do? So 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 17 
when the Philistines heard that they anointed David king over all of Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. Now, it's interesting in Hebrew, the word all, do you want to, you want to, know, do you want to know what the word all in Hebrew means? It means all. So it, it, it seems like that it's like the entire Philistine host rose up to come against David. And it says that when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now, verse 18, the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of the Rephaim. Uh, when you trace that Rephaim idea, it goes all the way back to the giants. And uh, we're not going to talk about them because it gets distracting. Uh, but this was a valley that apparently was full of giants. And according to, even to the passage, it seems like they're no longer there. But of course, they have their big houses and the ruins. And, and we know that there's still giants in the day because, you know, Goliath was not just a few years before all this. Giants, uh, giants. Goliath's brothers, you know, are, are being killed by David's men. And so you, you have giants in the land. Why is it that the Philistines chose the Valley of the Giants, regardless of whether there was giants, why would they choose that valley to fight David? And here's my proposal. Intimidation. They know who David is. They, 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 they fought with David before. Uh, David, right, Goliath was fighting with the Philistines. Uh, David, in order to marry Michal or Michael, right, had, had to cut off 200 foreskins of the Philistines, which I'm sure was delightful. So, hey, they've, they've had encounters with David, so they know who he is. So why would they choose his place? Because they're using every possibility to intimidate. Hey, if you had to go to battle, and the place you had to do battle was a place where giants used to live, and you don't know, are, are there, could there still be some in that, in that valley? I mean, wouldn't that bring a level of intimidation for you as you went down to fight? And so David shows up in the Valley of the Rephaim. Uh, if you want a picture of this, uh, there's a cheesy kids movie back when I was a little kid in the 90s called Little Giants. That's an old Disney film, and it's about these two football teams. Has anybody seen it? It's a cute show. Uh, don't watch it, but it's, it's a cute show. <clears throat> uh, but basically, the, the whole premise is that there's this little town, and they have a peewee football team, and you, you know who tries out for peewee football. It's like the whoa, big, strong, muscular guys, you know, like Hudson. And, like, you know, the, the, the guys actually have bulk and uh, strength, and who can actually play football? Uh, but there's a whole group of people, the nerdy kids in the town, who wanted to play and tried out. But of course, they didn't look like football players. They didn't have muscles like football players. They had glasses. You know, they're nerds. And so we were all over on this side. And they, they wanted to play. They couldn't play. So they decided, let's just create our own team. And so they created their own little team. And suddenly, the coach of this team and the coach of this team, uh, this coach of the real team comes to the nerdy coach and just says, hey, look, the town has only allowed one football team. And so the nerdy coach said, well, then let's have a playoff. We'll play you guys, and whoever wins, that'll be the football team for the town. And of course, this guy has all the strong kids, has all the muscular ones, and he goes, all right, this will be fun. We will ground you into the ground. And so finally, the, the whole show is building up to the fact that now it's game day. And uh, you, you know these kids have no ability. They can't play football. They don't look like football people. They have no muscles. They, ha they, got, they got nothing. So how on earth are they going to 
win a game. So they use intimidation. Well, how are nerdy little kids going to intimidate the big kids? So they come up with these, you know, creative strategies. Like, you know, they paint their faces, you know, because that looks mean and nasty. But my favorite scene in the whole show is uh, they, they get into this little huddle, and they're talking about, okay, how are we going to make this next play? And one kid starts passing out Alka-Seltzers. And every kid has an Alka-Seltzer. You know what Alka-Seltzer is? That stuff you put in the water, and it starts fizzing, and it's, you know, when you're sick and stuff. Uh, so they all have an Alka-Seltzer, and they say, okay, and break! And they all put Alka-Seltzer in their mouth. And they go, and they stand on the line. And as they're standing on the line, looking at the big kids, they start to growl, and foam is coming out, you know, and it's, you know, there's all this stuff going on. And now they look like rabid dogs, and, they're, and they win the play, you know, so that's one play. Now they got, you know, 100 more to go. And so the only way that this team, they, they can't win. We, we know that. So they're going to have to use intimidation and use it to their advantage. That's what the Philistines are doing. They realize who they're going against, David. They know who David's God is. How on earth are they going to try to win a battle? Well, they're, they're using some intimidation. And so they come and they spread out in the valley of the Rephaim. And it says in verse 19, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? I love the fact that David doesn't just presume. He's dependent. He's trusting. He turns to God and says, God, what do you want to do? God, God how do you want to handle this? Do you want me to go fight him? And look at what God says at the end of verse 19. The Lord said to David, go up, for I will doubtlessly deliver the Philistines into your hands. I will doubtlessly deliver the Philistines I will certainly deliver the Philistines into your hands. Uh, that word there for certainly or doubtlessly deliver, uh, it's probably one of my all-time favorite Hebrew words. It's the Hebrew word, Nathan. Isn't that a great word? That is a great word. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, the word or the name Nathan means to give or a gift, uh, and Nathaniel means a gift from God. I like that. <laughs> and when you look at it, it's in a verb form here, but when, when you look at the idea in Hebrew, the idea of what God is saying to David is, David, I, I'm going to gift, I'm going to hand over the Philistines into your hand. But what's interesting with this particular word is it has, it gives like three image, images or this ideas with it. Uh, one idea is like a tree bearing fruit. And basically the idea is it's like God looks at David and says, David, you know that at a certain time of the year, a healthy tree without a doubt will bear good fruit. And David, just as you know for certain that a healthy tree at a right time of year will bear fruit, I promise you, I will deliver the Philistines into your hands. Uh, another idea is like the idea of promise. For example, God gave Abraham the promise that, hey, your seed is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And it's like God could be looking at David saying, David, look around you. I have been fulfilling that promise that, that there's now countless Israelites around you. 
I mean, they are as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. David, just as I am fulfilling the promise to your forefather Abraham, so too I promise that I'm going to hand and give you the Philistines. And the third idea is like this idea of the sun coming up. That none of you, my guests this morning, uh, woke up really early, deeply concerned, looking out the window. I, is the sun going to come up or not? I really hope so. I just, I'm, I'm not sure today if it's, today's going to be the day, you know. See, none of you had that thinking. Why? Because it always comes up. We could break out in a song, right? Tomorrow, tomorrow. Right? You can bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. Okay, none of you saw that apparently. But, <laughs> but you realize that you don't, you don't have to worry about the sun coming up in the morning. Why? It is guaranteed. Now, even if it's covered by cloud, you know that the sun is up. And it's like God looking at David saying, David, I promise you, just as you know the sun will come up every morning, so too I promise you I will doubtlessly deliver the Philistines into your hands. Now, if God looked at you and gave you such a promise, wouldn't you go into battle with confidence? Wouldn't, wouldn't you march into that battle going, we got this. In fact, if I was David, I would have turned to my troops and just said, sit this one out. I'll go down and handle it. I mean, Jonathan, my best friend, says David, proved that God can win with many or with few with his armor bearer. So let's try it. If God has promised that he will doubtlessly deliver them, sit this one out, I'll go down and see what God does. Now we have no record of what actually happened, but that's what I would have done. If you were guaranteed victory, So David walks down in verse 20, and he says that he came to a place called Baal Perazim and defeated them there. That's all it gives us. Isn't that miserable? Don't you want details? Don't you just want like the behind the scenes of like, oh, then David with his face strewn with blood was saying, let's go. But you don't get it. But look at, look at what David says. He's looking at the aftermath of this battle, and he says in verse 20, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore, he renamed that place Baal Perazim. Think about this. Uh, David is crowned king over all of Israel. And so the enemies of David rise up and say, we will not stand for that. And so the enemy forces come and they, they spread themselves out in the valley of the Rephaim to battle David. And David doesn't want to live by presumption. He, he's trusting in his God. In fact, you even see that the rest of the chapter where the Philistines return and David says, do you want me to do it again? And God says, no, sit this one out. I will handle it. And when you hear the, the chariots and the thunderings and the mulberry trees then come out and it says that he literally drove them back uh, in verse 25, to Geba as far as Gezer, which is, in other words, he drove them as far, basically back to their hometowns. That he just like pushed them to the edge, to the, to the border, kicked them all out. See, David is not making presumptions. See, Moses made a presumption when he hit the rock instead of talked to the rock, right? Because, you know, years before they needed water and Moses said, God, how do you want to, how do you want to give us water? And God says, got a staff, hit the rock. So, and water started flowing out. 
Now, 40 years later, they need water. God says, there's a rock, speak to the rock. Moses goes, oh yeah, I know what to do. And hits the rock. And God says, you're not listening. You disobeyed. And now you're not entering into the promised land. <laughs> That's a consequence. Now, it's all symbolic, and it's a beautiful picture of Jesus even in that. But do you realize that David did not make that same assumption? That even though God moved in a, in a mighty way in, in our scene, when the Philistines come back, he doesn't just say, well, yeah, I'll do the same thing I've always done. He says, God, now how do you want to deal with this? God, I'm dependent. I'm surrendered. I'm trusting you. So how, how do you want to handle these people? And God, think about this. God did such a movement. God broke through in such an incredible way that David says we can no longer call this location the Valley of Giants. It's no longer the Valley of Giants. God did such a movement, we're going to rename the place Baal Perazim. And that name means the master of breakthroughs. Do you know what David renamed that location? He renamed the location the master of breakthroughs. Why? Because God broke through like the breakthrough of water. That, that word breakthrough, that word actually is that idea of, uh, of a dam. Right? If you've ever seen those, like the cartoons of the dam, right? there's a big water reservoir thing. Here's a dam. And uh, there's a little crack in it so water starts seeping out. Right? So the cartoon typically comes over and puts his finger in it. Right? And then, which causes another one. To, so he puts that. And then he has to put it like a toe. And then suddenly you hear this. And then suddenly this. And there's a breakthrough. And all the water zooms out. That's this word. Uh, this word, this, this word is often used for childbearing. And I've never given birth. But from what I've been told, praise the Lord. Uh, from what I've been told is that, that there comes a point in a mother's womb where there is going to be a breakthrough. Even if she wants to hold the child in, it ain't happening. That child is coming. And it is coming as a breakthrough. That's this idea. So think about this. God did such a movement in the Philistine camp. David just ransacked the camp on such a level that he says, you, do you know what just took place? There was such a breakthrough of God in this place that we can no longer call this the Valley of Giants. We're now going to have to call this a place where God broke through because he is the master of breakthroughs. Now take all of that, bring it into your life. Jesus is to be crowned king and Lord of your life. But when Jesus is crowned king of your life, do you realize that the enemies of your soul are going to rise up and say, we, we will not stand for that? In fact, students, my guess is at some point this week, you're going to start sensing that. That as you keep taking steps forward in truth, and you, you say, okay, Lord, I, I want you to have everything, you're, you're going to start noticing that there's this weird battle going on where it's like, I really want it, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to give up my control. What is that? It's a battle. Could it be that your God wants to come into your life and doubtlessly deliver you from all of your enemies? Is it possible that God wants to be the master of breakthroughs in your soul?
Do you realize that God loves impossibilities? He's not intimidated by them. What is impossible with man is, is possible with God, said Jesus multiple times. And if you, if you look at the scope of Scripture, what, what you begin to notice is that God will often purposely allow the circumstances of, of life to build to such an extent where it is an impossible situation. For example, the Red Sea. That was an impossible situation. Now, we look back and we're like, well, yeah, there's a solution. But when, when they were walking through it, that was impossible. You had mountains on two sides, a Red Sea in front of you, and an army coming up the back. Gideon, where God shrinks down the force to 300 people, now facing over 100,000 people? How, how, that's impossible! God delights in impossibilities. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90. And God says, you're going to be with child. And it says that Sarah laughed. I would too. Could you imagine looking at your grandmother going, you're going to have a child. See, you're just laughing. And if your grandma's not 90 yet, wait a few more years. Caleb, at 85 years old, taking the mountain of giants. I mean, you, you have story after story after story where it's like God allows the circumstances to increase to such a level where it is impossible. But then he smirks and goes, oh, do you know who I am? I'm the master of breakthroughs. Uh, if you lock your keys inside your car, you call a locksmith. If you need to get into a safe, legally, <laughs> if you need to get into a safe, you do not call a locksmith. You call a master locksmith. Do you know what a master locksmith is? Someone who can get into anything. Which is scary. <laughs> do you realize that God is not a God of breakthroughs? He's not, he's not the God of breakthroughs. He is the master of breakthroughs. There is no circumstance or situation or habit or temptation or sin or trial in your life that he cannot break through. You do not have a family, a financial, or a whatever crisis in your life that God cannot handle. But what about our country? What about our country? Do you think God is intimidated by the craziness of our culture? No. You're like, but it's getting impossible. It's getting so dark. I don't, can God even break through? What are you talking about? Don't you know who your God is? He's the master of breakthroughs. He delights in impossibilities. And if you look at your life and it seems like there's an impossible situation, there's an impossible relationship, there's an impossible family problem, there's an impossible financial thing, there's an impossible health, there's an impossible whatever, will you lean upon him? Because he's the master of breakthroughs. And he wants to break through like a breakthrough of water in your life. Do you realize that when we come and we pray to God, we are praying to the master of breakthroughs? And yet a lot of our praying shows that we actually don't think he is. Because we, we, we take a problem to God and we say, God, I, I have this problem. And I'm not so sure you can handle my problem. God, is there anything you can do in this? 
Wouldn't it be amazing to realize that when you pray, you are praying to the master of breakthroughs? And it became not a, God, can you? It's, God, I know you can, so I trust you. And however you want to handle this, okay. And maybe he'll handle it, maybe he won't, but you need to trust him because he's able. He's able, folks. He's able. In fact, he's so able that in Ephesians chapter 3, which is what we're going to be looking at in the fall, if I can tease out that series a little bit. Think about this. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, and if you want to hear the profundity of this, listen to the series in the fall. But in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, listen to what Paul says. Now to him who is able. Well, what is he able to do? Far more abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever amen that is your God will you trust him will you throw yourself upon him let's pray oh Lord we thank you that you and you alone are the master of breakthroughs. And Lord, there's not a circumstance, a situation, a trial, or a temptation that you can't handle. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would be the master of breakthroughs in our lives. Lord, would you be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords? And no matter what enemy wants to come against that, Lord, will you prove yourself faithful? Will you prove yourself as the master of breakthroughs? Would you once again in this generation prove that you still sit upon the throne? That as Christians, we do not have to be pushed around by sin and defeat and lust and pride and greed and whatever. That we do not have to in the church live with hypocrisy or duplicity. That we can be Christians. And Lord, even though the the culture is looking at our lives and just saying it's all fake. They're looking at our lives and saying they're talking a talk, but they're living an entirely different life. Lord, may it not be so with the people in this room, with those who are listening. Lord, let us be Christians to the fullest extent of that word. And may the world know that you are the master of breakthroughs because in every situation we are not leaning upon our own strength, our own wisdom, our own ability, but rather, Lord, we are leaning upon the strong arm of our God. Lord, would you prove yourself out through these humble vessels known as us, Lord, I pray that it would not be about us, it would not be about our applause, it would not be about our name, it would not be about our fame. Lord, it would be about you. And so, Lord, I I want to surrender myself afresh and say, Lord, would you do whatever is necessary in my life to use my life as a showcase, as a demonstration that you are still the master of breakthroughs, even in today's season, in today's culture, in today's generation. And Lord, I don't know what people are dealing with this morning. I don't know what the troubles are. I don't, I don't know the impossibilities that they may be facing. But Lord, would you allow them to turn their gaze not upon the problem, but upon you. Lord, don't, don't let us look at our problems and, and then turn to you and tell you how big our problems are. Lord, could we, could we turn to our problems and tell our problems how big our God is? Because you are the master of breakthroughs. 
And Lord, I pray that as we come into prayer, that we would realize that the one to whom we are praying loves, delights in impossibilities, and you want to break through. And though it may be completely different than how we imagine it, Lord, we want to say we trust you, that we throw ourselves upon you. Lord, you are good. Your mercies endure forever. Great is your faithfulness. Love you, Jesus. Pray all this in your holy and precious and powerful name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.